They say that getting in shape is hard, but no one told you about the struggle. It's time for you to get healthy, but business and family make life complicated. Discover all the high-performance secrets that founders and busy entrepreneurs use to ensure they stay fit and lean, no matter how busy they get. This podcast is a reminder to use those secrets, which make getting in shape easy and stress-free, while doing it in a way that fits your busy lifestyle. And ultimately, this will make you a better performer at work and home. You're listening to The High Performance Founder with your host, Dan Goh. All right. And we have my friend, Will Vanderveer here. Will, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, brother. I really appreciate it. How are you doing, man? Great to be here. I've I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. So, uh... You meet someone uh, at a nice uh, cocktail bar and they ask you, what do you do? What exactly do you say to them? That's a great question. I, uh, it's changed a lot over the years. <laughs> yeah. The current iteration is I, uh, I run uh, a very large um, psychedelic therapy training program to prepare people for a future where we hopefully we'll have access to tools like MDMA therapy and psilocybin therapy. We currently have ketamine therapy available. Um, and I don't practice psychiatry anymore is another piece because people want to know that when they ask me, I, I run a clinic where we provide ketamine therapy, but I don't practice anymore. So those are, those are my big things is teaching, um, advocacy and, um, helping to push the movement forward. Awesome. And you are the one that teaches the therapists how to integrate these compounds into the therapy sessions. Is that true? Right. That's what our program does. And we have um, a large number of faculty members who contribute. So uh, I'm in the background helping organize the flow of the learning. And I do teach a little bit, but it's not a a one-man show by any means. Gotcha. So yeah. if you were to explain psychedelic therapy, or is it okay if I call it psychedelic therapy? Because I know that you call sure. it integrative therapy, right? Um, what would you say to someone that uh, knows about psychedelic therapy, but is unbeknownst to what actually happens within that session? Yeah, so I'd probably start with, for someone like that, uh, they're probably familiar with ordinary therapy. Conventional therapy is usually talking to a therapist, typically. Talk therapy is another name for that. Psychedelic therapy is a very different experience. Um, In short, it's having therapy while you're on a psychedelic compound. So the kinds of experiences a person has on a psychedelic make that therapy experience really different. And also the way the therapist holds the space for the healing very, very different. Typically a lot less talking. Um, in general therapists in a psychedelic setting refrain from interpreting what's going on. It's really more, uh, less is more in a psychedelic session for the therapist. Um, generally if you follow accepted practices as a psychedelic therapist, you're, 
you're not really interfering with the process much. You're really supporting that person to get empowered inside of themselves. And when there's an intervention that's needed, you know, there's, there's some guardrails to help someone not get into trouble. Uh, but the therapist is not as involved uh, as you would be in ordinary talk therapy. That's something I noticed when I was going through uh, my first round of psychedelic therapy, where it feels like you are the one talking yourself through the therapy itself. It's not necessarily the actual therapist, and they're there to, um, like you said, provide guardrails for you uh, and to and to also kind of like guide you in a way, right? Now, one of the things that surprised me when I was going through my process was you just don't jump on the couch, they give you a psychedelic drug and let you go do your thing. There is a process to this. So what does that process look like when someone's about to get into uh, psychedelic therapy? Right. So we call that phase preparation, and there's a lot of elements to that. One of them is helping people get, some people call it flight instructions, get oriented toward how you're going to approach the experience. Some basic concepts, uh, like for example, if you run into a very difficult or intense experience to orient toward that rather than trying to get away from it. And of course, the, the guide or the therapist can help you with that if you forget that. Um, another really important piece is talking about intention setting. So what is the client wanting the result to be from the session? Um, or another form of intention setting is setting your psychology or your spirit in the right place to receive the downloads and the wisdom that can happen in a session like that. So uh, intention setting, um, flight instructions, and then also talking about how the therapist is going to support the person is really important beforehand. Um, there's a, a whole kind of difficult conversation happening in the psychedelic therapy community around sexual boundary violations and transgressions by psychedelic therapists. And so, for example, talking about therapeutic touch uh, before the person's on a psychedelic is critical. You know, does the person want that? Uh, yes, no. Like what kind of touch is supportive for that person? Gathering that information before the session. Um, and then safety agreements are really important too, uh, that someone's not just going to get up and leave while they're on ketamine or MDMA or psilocybin uh, without being cleared uh, where it's not safe, you know, to, to get up and move around or leave the environment you're in. Gotcha. Gotcha. And then the reason I was going and uh, seeking out psychedelic therapy was uh, to, to help me come to terms with some of the resentments that I had in my life, uh, possibly actually, I, I came in looking to get rid of some resentments. I came out actually dealing with some, I guess you could say some small levels of PTSD that I had as a child. And 
sometimes it's like I, I realize this is that sometimes you think you're going in for one thing, but you're getting something completely different. <laughs> now, now, what? Why would people, uh, or why do people choose uh, to do psychedelic psychedelic therapy in the first place? The people that we've treated, I should I should back up and say that uh, since some of your listeners might not know my background, I was involved in MDMA therapy research. And the people who came to that research to participate were people who had tried everything there is to try. They tried medications, they tried therapies. Um, on average, that group of people we treated had more than 29 years of PTSD symptoms. And some of them had more than a thousand sessions of therapy under their belt before they came to psychedelic therapy. So the short answer to your question is you try psychedelic therapy when nothing else has worked mm -hmm. that you've tried. Um, people, we talk, you and I talk about this all the time that, you know, it's diet, it's exercise, it's sleep, it's all the things that people need. But when you have bad PTSD or bad depression, the basic things that keep a well person well are not enough to turn the key to get people well. So I think the answer is going to change as our culture comes to uh, more acceptance and embrace psychedelic therapy. But, but in the past, it's been really aimed at folks who really didn't get well by any other means. Um, but I would say that the, the main things that are bringing people in are uh, trauma, so PTSD, depression. Uh, there is some interesting evidence out of uh, some, like NYU and, and Hopkins around uh, people who are dealing with end of life existential angst and anxiety with cancer and things like that. Um, there are now people looking at cluster headaches with psilocybin and uh, other kinds of anxiety problems, um, bipolar depression with ketamine. So th there's a broadening kind of sense of the different things that can be supported by psychedelic therapy. Yeah. And you mentioned the fact that um, people would choose psychedelic therapy when nothing else works. But from my anecdotal experience, it doesn't seem like the traditional methods work in the first place, or at least don't work as well. Uh, can you can you uh, speak to the differences between, um, say, getting a, a traditional uh, psychiatry or a psychiatric session uh, and the efficacy towards that, as opposed to the results that you've seen uh, doing psychedelic therapy? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, being trained as a psychiatrist was pretty cool for a while. But then when I started to see the limitations and what I learned, it was pretty devastating. And I actually quit psychiatry a couple of years after I finished my training to go looking for better tools. The, the typical tools, you know, SSRIs, cognitive therapy, that kind of stuff can work for, you know, 30 to 40% of people. Uh, but they also come with a couple of uh, major problems. The therapies, like cognitive therapy, take a long time for people to get through, and um, a lot of people drop out in the studies on cognitive therapy. Uh, there, there's a therapy at the VA that's called exposure therapy, uh, prolonged exposure that's extremely painful to go through, uh, and people drop out because they don't tolerate the therapy. 
on the medication side, it's it's really discouraging because um, the medications for PTSD work for you know less than half of the people who take them, and they don't deal with the root of the issue. So mm-hmm. we're looking at with with traditional medications for depression and PTSD, it's straight up a it's a it's a suppressive approach. You're suppressing symptoms, and don't get me wrong. I'm not anti-medication. I prescribe medication for 20 years and there's a time and a place for it, but suppressing symptoms is not a long-term solution. It's not a cure. And so what the promise of psychedelics is, is that we actually, especially with MDMA therapy for PTSD, we clearly have something that can register as a cure because we have people who are going 12 months, you know, 24 months, 36 months with no return to PTSD after getting well from three MDMA sessions. Yeah. Totally different approach. Like just uh and just speaking from my own experience, um, and <laughs> maybe you can maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, uh, or if I was told wrong. So I was told by the person who was administering the psychedelic therapy and from the friend who uh referred me to it. He said it's like uh getting uh, seven years of therapy in six hours <laughs> or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Is, okay. Number one, um, is that being over exaggerative when, when people, uh, explain it like that? Well, I mean, if you think about the numbers I just shared with you, you know, if you have 30 years of PTSD and you come and you do three sessions, divide 30 by three. <laughs> what does that tell you? <laughs> it's like, you know, um, pretty, pretty, uh, it's just, it, it makes me feel really raw because there's so many people out there who are, you know, not to go too dark here, but I mean, suicide is a, is a really serious problem, you know, and it's increasingly a problem globally. And, there was a study long time ago at the VA, like 15 years ago, where they came to the conclusion that 22 American veterans were killing themselves every single day in the U.S. Mm. Mm. So that's very old number. That's It's probably a lot worse than that in the veteran population. And the thing is, most people don't realize that PTSD is, is you know, the veteran population is just the tip of the iceberg. That's whenever I'm on an airplane and I sit next to someone and tell them the cocktail answer you asked me, they're like, Oh, it's so great. You're helping veterans. And I'm like, no, you don't understand. Like for every veteran with PTSD, there's probably 20 or 50. I don't know what the ratio is, but um, people who dealt with all kinds of PTSD, people don't get that. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it can be childhood PTSD, the way in which you were raised, or maybe the way in which you weren't raised, uh, or who wasn't there as a, as a family member. Uh, I mean, like people don't realize, like they think that PTSD is this thing that you get only by, uh, you know, seeing like combat when the reality is, is that we carry a lot of stuff with us, uh, from childhood that, that actually dictates our behavior. Right, like uh, as we're adults, uh, what kinds of what kinds of things do you see with people um, in terms of the way in which they react to the world uh, based on what they have learned uh, through childhood or through maybe even like teenage or adulthood? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I agree hundred percent with what you're saying that the ways that we're raised and the things that we see and 
the conclusions that we draw as a child about what is possible and how the world works truly shape how we conduct ourselves in the world. You know, it, it, our childhoods tell us what's possible about the world. Um, what, how relationships work is a key one because, um, I mean, if you take someone, I'll just use myself as an example because I have massive childhood trauma in, in my background. I can talk a little more about that if you want, but sure. I, 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 I lived in a world where you, you learn not to ask for relational support because either it's going to be a violent response or it's going to be a complete uh, neglect kind of response, one or the other. And neither one of those was good. So I learned how to take care of myself and be independent pretty early. And that served me really well. Uh, it made me independent. It, it pushed me to grow and get good grades and go to medical school and tolerate abuse of medical training and, you know, stay up all night, every third or fourth night for years to admit patients in the hospital and never question it, you know, all the, all the benefits. But it also caused me in my intimate relationships to be really disconnected hmm. um, and in a lot of pain because it, even though you decide you can't go ask for help from other people, you still have those needs. And so it hurts to not get the help and to not know how to get it. So people, even so to speak, high functioning people like myself are, are dealing with these deep wounds that really alter what we think can happen in the world and, and who we are. And I find that uh, a lot of times the way in which we kind of shield ourselves from relationships, uh, these are learned behaviors to protect ourselves as a result of what we learned in childhood. Um, so I, I want to get to your personal story in a bit, and I actually have a, a really cool uh, question um, for you in regards to that. Uh, but but before we get into that, uh, just a little bit of nitty gritty. Um, what would you say are the differences in administering uh, MDMA, ketamine, psilocybin, LSD, and ayahuasca? Or what are the differences that people can expect uh, through going through specific types of therapies? Yeah. So I'll start with ketamine. Um, that's pretty simple. Ketamine's currently available. Uh, so it's legal to do in a medical context. Um, ketamine lasts for about 45 minutes to an hour for the drug effect. So a ketamine session at our clinic takes about two hours where we have a therapist working with you on ketamine and helping you to find those insights that are going to unlock the kind of root of depression is what we're hoping for. Um, it also carries a chemical benefit. Um, ketamine has certain things it does in the brain that are really helpful for people who have been dealing with chronic depression. Um, so ketamine is flexible and useful in that it's short and it has a rapid impact on suicidal thinking often and a very rapid antidepressant effect. So those are the benefits of ketamine. The downside of ketamine is that it's known as the heroin of psychedelics because people do get addicted to heroin, uh, to ketamine. And um, when I worked at Burning Man in the, the Zendo in the harm reduction tent, I was blown away how many people are on ketamine. That was my first introduction to like, wow, people are actually using a lot of ketamine. Out, out here. Um, so 
so that's a unique uh, downside of ketamine. Um, and then the other downside is that oftentimes the antidepressant effect doesn't stick around. So then if you look at MDMA, we, we can talk about like research protocols because it's not currently available. It's on schedule one. The protocol that um, was developed by the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies over the last 20 years, they've been doing really hard work, beautiful work to bring this forward. It's now in phase three. So everyone's expecting the FDA to review that around the end of next year. So the end of 2023, there should be a decision about whether MDMA gets approved or not. That protocol is a three MDMA session protocol for chronic PTSD. Um, but there's also a lot of preparatory time without MDMA and a lot of integration sessions without MDMA. So the entire arc of that protocol is 42 hours of therapy. Um, but the MDMA sessions are eight hours, one month apart from each other. It's interesting because there are two therapists in the room uh, on that protocol. So that becomes um, a problem for making it widely available uh, if it becomes legal because it's expensive to pay two therapists 42 hours of therapy each to make that happen. It's a whole nother story. So, so MDMA is an eight hour session basically. So um, it's a much bigger commitment than ketamine. And uh, like I said, it's being used more from trauma than depression. Then if we go to, uh, where do you want to go next from MDMA uh, and ketamine? Let's go, let's, psilocybin seems to psilocybin. be. Yeah. Great. Yeah. So, or magic mushrooms, if some people yeah. don't understand. Yeah. yeah. So psilocybin, uh, primarily being studied for treatment-resistant depression, but some of these other things we talked about before, it's about a six to eight-hour experience. Some people have a shorter experience. They metabolize it quickly, so six hours on average. Um, and it's different from MDMA in that it's people often have what they call a mystical experience, meaning like a ego, like your, your sense of who you are opens up and you might feel really connected to God or to nature or to your own inner divine uh, intelligence or wisdom, universe, plants. And people can have a lot of visual effects from psilocybin as well. All of these tools, I just want to say they, they all have one thing in common, which is that you can have, like you were talking about how you wanted to deal with resentments in your life, but then you got into childhood stuff that came up. So it's really important to highlight that because people who go out and they want to get well, or they want to just take some psilocybin mushrooms with their friends, or they want to do something that's maybe healing, maybe they're doing it in a sacred way, but they're on their own. These things can open up childhood memories. And I've had that experience myself a number of times. And it's, if you're by yourself, it can be, it can get really scary. And, uh, I think that's where sometimes people can get into traumatizing themselves or I've had a number of people, I'm getting a little off track here, Dan, but I've had a number mm. of uh, patients I treated who took psilocybin at a music festival with their friends. And then all of a sudden they're having all these flood of memories you know, of getting raped or beat up or something bad happened in the childhood and they don't know what's going on. They don't know how to interpret it. And they're in the mosh pit and this is going on and they start freaking out. And pretty soon the cops are called and now they're having a law officer trauma. It's really sad. 
And so then now they need therapy for that. <laughs> and then they also need therapy for the original thing that came up at the, <laughs> at the festival. <laughs> so oh, no. just be careful out there. Anyway, yeah. so so then we could talk about LSD and ayahuasca, which are two very different situations as well. But I'll just say briefly that LSD is not being studied all that much right now. And I think the main reason, there's probably two reasons, but I think the main reason is that it's such a long experience for people, 12 hours. It's really hard to, if you're a therapist, it's really hard to pay attention uh, for that long and sit with someone for that long or not go to the bathroom for that long. <laughs> or, or they might as well just take it along with them so they can. <laughs> <laughs> right. right. So, so it's, there's not much going on. And then probably the other reason is that there's such a big stigma with Timothy Leary and all of the cultural baggage LSD has. Um, and then ayahuasca in general is much more of a, uh, indigenous, uh, ritual ceremony. Um, when it's, I would say when it's done well, when it's, when it's done in a good way, um, there's plenty of backyard shamans, as I like to say, you know, who don't really have much training and, um, aren't, you know, a part of a lineage and they're not regularly probably talking with people about how's it going being a shaman, like, you know? And so they're, they're more prone to acting out and, um, getting, hurting people. So, but the traditional way isn't typically an all night experience. I think there's some indigenous tribes that do it during the daytime, but for the most part, it's like overnight where you sun goes down and you drink, you drink the tea and, and you set up all night. Um, and you have visions and you feel often really connected to, the uh environment the the planet at least that that's been my experience with ayahuasca is feeling incredibly connected to plants and animals and the you know the planet itself the universe and how uh just by curiosity how many uh people have you personally worked with uh taking them through these particular sessions or not through the sessions with those particular drugs but the ones that uh, are legal and the ones that we mentioned. Yeah. So I treated um, a few hundred people with ketamine therapy. Uh, our clinic has grown now. We have other therapists who are doing that work. So we've, we've treated um, you know more than a thousand people um, yeah. in the clinic, but personally only a few hundred. And then uh, when we worked with the MDMA study here in Boulder, I had about half a dozen uh, participants I worked with. So I was, I got to be a therapist in the room, um, probably 18 or 20 times. And then I was also working with maps on a training study where we brought therapists to town to give them MDMA as part of their gaining competence to deliver MDMA therapy. That's another mm -hmm. piece that's interesting about psychedelic therapy is it's really hard to provide good psychedelic therapy if you haven't taken the drug that you're working with. Yeah. 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 So what, you know, what's really cool about what you just said is the number one is like you actually have uh, the person to person experience, but also uh, the fact that you have therapists under you that are actually helping thousands of other people. You actually have this um, seeing the forest for the trees type of aspect as well. You have like what I call like the head coach aspect where you can see kind of like the the little idiosyncrasies without necessarily being there face to face now you know what exactly has observing these sessions and the process towards healing 
uh, taught you about mental health and specifically your own life? I have learned maybe two things that are that are most they're related, but they're the most potent downloads have been that what you think is a jail. Um, it could be a tool if you're really careful about what you believe in the thoughts inside your head. Um, that the biggest breakthroughs that I've seen in myself and others is when people recognize, oh my God, I came to this conclusion when I was a little guy and that was true then, but it's not true anymore. And it's time to let that go and transcend and include that. So Hmm. thoughts, we don't, in ordinary consciousness, we don't question our thoughts enough. Um, So that's number one. Number two is that there's a there's a divinity or a, a, a wisdom that each of us has inside of us that's not personal, in my experience. Um, it's collective, and yet it's accessible to us in the right state. It doesn't have to be on a psychedelic, but that is where I've most easily accessed that state. That uh, is a deep knowing about our lives and each other and how to conduct ourselves in a win-win kind of mentality in the world. Um, I, I've, I've gotten, you know, repeated messages about kind of transcending this us and them, win-lose kind of binary scarcity. There's only enough money. There's only enough food. There's only enough water. There's too many people, you know, these scary, stressful kinds of binary thinking. So when I'm really tapped in to myself, um, I see possibilities that are way beyond that. And so I try as much as I can to live from that space. So it's kind of like in meditation where I say that um, you are not your thoughts, you're the watcher of your thoughts. And something that I've realized in my own life is how uh, we, we get programming from our parents, our teachers, from our situations. Uh, and, and these things are just stories that are running in our own heads that we say so many times that we end up believing them. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, one thing that, uh, you know, taking psychedelics uh, recreationally and also in the therapeutic setting has taught me is, uh, is just that it's, uh, it's what you tell yourself on a regular basis is what you're going to program yourself into not believe everything that you hear. Yeah. Now, I'm going to veer this into a little bit of a interesting direction right now. And, uh, I want to ask you, what does Alabama football mean to you? <laughs> I love it. Yes. Oh, it's so good. There's some LSD research going on in Alabama, by the way, but that's another, right. that's another tangent. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, so <laughs> I grew I was born in Tuscaloosa. My parents were students there at the University of Alabama, and uh, my grandfather was a pretty well-known sports writer and he was friends with a lot of famous sports people you know like muhammad ali and different people and one person he was friends with was bear bryant before he uh was like a thing and so Mm -hmm. they knew each other and so the the story in my family was that uh, my grandfather helped uh bear bryant get hired at Alabama. And so they, they were longtime friends. And so when I was a kid, uh, well, when I was born, 
Bear Bryant's wife was there with my mom at the hospital and uh, held me before my dad held me. So mm-hmm. it was a deep relationship I had with her. Um, I used to spend summers down there with her until she died. And her death was the first uh, real significant loss that I had in my life. And it's a real, a real pivot point for me. But I um, can't get away from Alabama football. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, this is uh, very thankful. I'm very thankful to your wife uh, for passing me on this information. <laughs> um, and they acted as uh, godparents to you. Uh-huh. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And how was that experience uh, having them as godparents in relation to the parenting that you were getting at home? Well, I'll tell you a story about that. Um, Bear Bryant had a, uh, a bodyguard. His name was Billy, and he carried a uh, handgun on his on his hip all the time. And he, when Bear would swim laps in the pool in their backyard, Billy would literally walk to one <laughs> end of the pool while Bear was in the water, and then walk all the way back down. <laughs> and so the kind of treatment I got from Mary Harmon was Bear's wife, Mary Harmon Bryant, was. Uh, hey, Will, what do you like to eat? And I'd say, uh, boiled shrimp. And uh, and I'd look over at Billy and he would roll his eyes. <laughs> He's like, man, you're so spoiled. It's unbelievable. <laughs> and so then he would, he would take us to the grocery and I would get whatever I wanted. And it was just like uh, total indulgence, total, you know, uh, I don't know, being spoiled. Yeah, which is really sweet because you know I needed more containment and structure and rules at home, but I got to have a different experience with her. Were you not yeah. getting the containment and structure at your own home? I was getting some of that from my mom for sure. Yeah. Uh, my my father, bless his heart, we're we're good friends now. We've we've patched uh, everything up at this point. But uh, he was he was a wild man. He was he was very out of control, alcoholic, um, you know, violent, you know, car crashes, gangsters, uh, <laughs> prison. I mean, everything. It was a total catastrophe. With but he wasn't around much. So uh, I think I probably created my own internal structure more than more than anything. And and was that internal structure and. It seems to me like you had to grow up a little bit fast in that type of yeah. environment. Was that internal structure what led you to getting into uh, psychiatry in the first place? You know, what got me into psychiatry in the first place, I was in college and for some reason I got a job in the library and I was putting books back on shelves. <laughs> it was the most boring job you can imagine. <laughs> Yeah. But what was cool about it is nobody was around looking over my shoulder to see how I spent my time or how efficient I was. So I would just g- pull a book off a shelf and like read some of it and then, you know, put it back and then go around. And And I started reading these anthropology books about like what indigenous cultures did and how they resolved problems and the rituals they had. And uh, I got really fascinated by that. And then I got in. I had an advisor who invited me to do a research project with him and he sent me over to the locked ward in the hospital on the campus to interview people who were psychotic 
and I was like, oh my God, I got to go to med school because I want to be around these people. These people are amazing. They're so interesting, totally different reality. And so I think the structure that was inside of me that from like growing up fast was really tight. It's still tight. You can ask my wife, yeah. it's tight in there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and yet at the same time, there was this part of me that was like, actually really curious about like what's happening outside of the tightness of my structure inside of myself. Yeah. And so I think that, mo- that probably is what took me into psychiatry was like this whole concept of like the, con- you know, the collective unconscious and all the things that can happen on a psychedelic looking at, wow, it's not just my childhood trauma. It's also my lineage trauma, right? It's like mm. what my people did to other people you know, a thousand years ago, that's in my body. Like these kinds of really deep collective themes um, fascinate me. Are you enjoying the show thus far? We go through so many resources and links with the podcast. It's tough to keep up. I get it. That's why Dan and the rest of the team put together the High Performance 7. It's a free online course that helps entrepreneurs get lean build muscle, and increase energy in a way that fits their lifestyle. We go over things like how to burn fat like a 20-year-old, the lazy man's way to building muscle, the 10-minute Superman system, the lead domino that makes all other things easy, and so much more. The best part? As a valued listener of the show, you can access the High Performance 7 100% free of charge. That's right. For simply being awesome and tuning in. To get full access, all you have to do is go to www.highperformance7.com. It's high performance, all spelled out, and the number 7.com. And fill out the short form there for us to give you full access. Once again, www.highperformance7.com. Now, back to the show. Do we call those like generational curses to uh, to a certain extent? Yeah. yeah, I had I had a shaman tell me that um, at one point that I had one of those going on, and you know, mm-hmm. there's generational trauma. I think yeah. is what we're talking about, or ep- yeah, epigenetic, intergenerational stuff. Yeah. So, how did you go from uh, in, being in this traditional based system? Uh, to being what I would consider to be a pioneer. And when I say pioneer, uh, I don't say that lightly because usually the pioneers are the ones with the arrows in their back, right? So how did you move from being this traditional-based or being part of traditional-based medicine to being uh, into this more uh, integrative-based medicine? It's been kind of a a weave of my own healing journey with uh, pretty deep, disturbance in my system about how limited the tools were that I learned in med school. Um, I had one, literally one, one hour session on nutrition in med school. Yeah. (laughs) One, (laughs) not, not a full course for a year. Yeah. That's, and that reminds me of doctors actually. (laughs) Right. It's like, yeah. 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 I mean, we, doctors don't look good, look good in terms of health parameters, right? Like, you look at longevity, look at suicide, look at, you know, chronic illness, look at, 
any number of things, stress, stress-related illness, it's not pretty for doctors. And yeah. I think a lot of us, just speaking on behalf of, you know, a lot of the students who study with us over the years, that there's a there's a particular uh, type of person who goes into medical training who knows how to tolerate a level of abuse that, um, I mean, there's, there's other groups of people who have tolerated incredible abuse, don't get me wrong, but um, it's rare for me to find a physician who hasn't got a sub- substantial childhood trauma history. I'll put it that way. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so how did you move from, uh, uh, let's just say being a traditional psychiatrist to, uh, to doing what you're doing right now? Well, the first thing that happened, um, so I got out of training in 2002 around the same time. I met my first meditation teacher and I went super deep with this guy, super deep. Um, and, uh, when I got so disgusted with medicine and quit psychiatry, I moved with my young family to a small town in Colorado and I meditated for hours a day for a year. It was crazy. It was like a deep meditation retreat. And at that time I thought, well, you know, meditation and psychotherapy are probably going to be enough to help me get well and also help other people get well, but it just wasn't enough. And then, uh, I got invited to an ayahuasca ceremony and it happened to be on mother's day. And at that time in my life, you know, 15 years ago, I was still pretty resentful toward my mom. Mm. And so it was like incredible timing to have a mother's day ceremony and with ayahuasca and the shaman from Peru was like this incredible prayer for like 30 minutes about his mother and all the mothers and the earth mother and the universe. And and I just was bawling and I cracked through something and I was like, wow, I'm in jail because of my resentment to my mom. And that was the beginning of another chapter of healing in my life. So every step of the way, the, the movement away from conventional care into what I'm doing now is much has, has been interwoven with my own healing journey. And needing to actually go get more potent tools to get well myself. Um, meditation helped me tremendously to, to know myself, to be with myself, sit with disturbance in myself, but it didn't help me at all in my interpersonal traumatic childhood patterns. Hmm. And um, psychedelics with guidance have helped me quite a bit in that you know recovery process. Hmm. Now, obviously, people take psychedelics in the very recreational sense. They t- they do it on their own, um, and then there are more traditional shamanistic uh, settings where you actually right. do it with a guide. Um, can you speak to the experiences of uh, doing it on your own as opposed to actually doing it with someone who has generational experience leading people through these uh, journeys. Yeah. I mean, the experiences I can speak to, I was put through the training study that I mentioned earlier uh, with MAPS, where I had the privilege of undergoing that protocol uh, one time, you know, but it was huge for me. Uh, There were things that happened there that I still think about um, in the present. And that was 
seven or eight years ago that that happened. What's, so, what's one of those things that you still think about? So there was a um, there was a moment in that session where uh, I was wearing eye shades and had music on, and I was inside of myself, and this clear vision came uh, to me of standing in a river uh, that the confluence of two rivers and one river was my mom's lineage and one was my dad's. Wow. And I was standing in this fast water with a staff and I became aware that this binary vision of scarcity and tribalism and I got to go take from someone to gain for myself, that whole mentality was a limited perspective that our species has lived inside of forever, basically. Mm. It's the rule of the jungle, right? The strong mm -hmm. man wins, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I realized that, and I put my staff in the river and I had this moment of, I, my life is for something different. My life is for the win-win. My life is for abundance. My life is for love. Um, I'm not going to live that way. And I'm putting an end to the lineage of trauma in my family really powerful moment. Um, and, uh, and I'm still trying to live up to that, you know, and <laughs> the amygdala has things to say about that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Dirty little almond. <laughs> yeah. And then, so when it comes to say reimagining, uh, the way a psychiatrist would treat someone, uh, with mental health issues, if you could reimagine the system, what would that look like to you? Wow. Well, we have, there's so many problems to solve. Uh, mm. It's a, a target rich environment, as they say. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> many things need to change. Um, yeah. What, I mean, access to care is a massive problem that, that needs a lot of effort and a lot of really smart people to solve. Um, access of the to the medicines is a political problem. So we have a sort of a financial resource problem. We have a political problem. And then we also have an education problem. So I'm, I'm working on the education problem right now to help therapists feel really confident and competent and, you know, help them to have, uh, the ability to do this work. Um, so that's, that's, that's one piece. Um, but I would love to see a way, I mean, if, if these tools prove what we think they're going to prove in these phase three studies, it's going to be a total no brainer. The, the, the financial models already exist to show that insurance companies and the government will save huge amounts of money offering these treatments rather than having people on disability or, mm -hmm. or worse, you know, um, over decades. So I, I would, I would like to, I don't want to get too, um, kind of like ungrounded or airy fairy mm -hmm. because in the psychedelic movement, there's, there's a lot of, um, over promise and under deliver, you know, yeah. but, um, it's nice to imagine a world, uh, in the future where people who get traumatized by something and they have, you know, they're clearly hitting those PTSD markers in their system they could just go in and have one session and be done and not have a 29 year 
arc of bad symptoms before they get into a tiny study. It's like the eye of the needle, you know? So mm -hmm. I, I, when, once I'm done with the education project, I might move over into more of an access project because that's really important. Definitely don't want to touch the political one. <laughs> just, that's just, yeah. I, I just care about you. I don't want you to do that to yourself. <laughs> All right. So I have some questions from Twitter. Uh, I put it out <laughs> yeah. there to, to my audience, and um, they have some very interesting questions. Uh, maybe I'll do the elves one that first, but okay, <laughs> no, maybe not. Yeah. No, let's I'll, do, I'll do that one later. I'll do that one later. <laughs> okay. now, now, who should not get psychedelic therapy? So psychedelic therapy can make some people a lot worse. And when I say worse, I mean destabilized. Yeah. So in, in my view, destabilization is a gateway to healing. But, you know, there, there's a thing where you're, you think about it this way, like, you know, maybe you see like a crack in the wall of your house and you're like, okay, I need to go take care of that. That's, that's a destabilization that's, um, something you can take care of pretty, if you have the resources, you can take care of it pretty quickly. The kind of destabilization, when I say it makes you worse, is the kind of destabilization where the foundation of your house got, you know, severely altered. And like, the floors aren't even flat anymore. Like you, you know, like an earthquake, like your a bomb went off or something. So that kind of destabilization could take a year of like imagine the house metaphor, like you have to go out and you have to earn the money. You have to move your family somewhere safe. You have to go through a whole process. And then maybe if you're lucky, you can find an engineer who can jack up your house and fix the foundation and all that stuff. So that's what some of the horror stories I've seen of people who maybe were not a good fit for psychedelic therapy. And then they had to work their asses off for a year to get to where they felt like they had like a solid foundation. So some of those people are generally speaking like people who have schizophrenia or they have a family history of schizophrenia or um, some people who have a particular kind of personality called a borderline personality structure, people with bipolar disorder. Um, some of them shouldn't take certain traditional uh, serotonin based in, uh, uh, psychedelics. Ketamine, on the other hand, is relatively safe for people with bipolar. So it's just like, there's a personalized recommendation that needs to happen there. So, and that's something that also kind of, you know, it's part of this, um, getting ungrounded and overpromising thing is like the yeah. people who think that psychedelics are good for everybody, like Timothy Leary seemed to believe it's just going to hurt people and it's going to cause more of a cultural backlash and lack of access to the people who really need it. Yeah. I think I told you, uh, uh, in the conversation that I met one of Timothy Leary's, uh, godchildren or something like that on, in, in Mexico. Yeah. Um, right. Yeah. And then, uh, he ended up, so they had this, they had the commune or they had this thing where everybody who was doing psychedelics at that time were living together and the kids are running around amok everywhere with each other. Oh, yeah, and, yeah, um, yeah. And then he told me, it's just like they like the kids would actually take psychedelics. Wow. And he ended up, um, the guy I talked to, he ended up uh, developing a heroin addiction uh, due to the way that he was raised as a child uh, because there was no parenting going on during that, that entire time. And uh, and he's telling me, it's just, he's still until he actually is still, he has like, I think it was like 
is it Aldous Huxley is or something like he has like some sort of like thank you note to him in in like one of his books. But wow. he was just telling me it's just like yeah, it's like if you think psychedelics is like the cure all and end all be all, like you're you're in for a very rude awakening. It's not. Yeah. It's actually there's a lot of work that goes on that actually has to go on after that and even before right. that. You know, so all right, I'm I'm just getting ahead of myself right here. So next question. Uh okay, I'm gonna go with the elves one. All right. So do patients talk you. about <laughs> I'm gonna surprise you with the answer. Go ahead. Oh yes. Awesome. <laughs> so do patients talk about entities or machine elves during or after the sessions? And if so, what does the therapist make of it? <laughs> <laughs> it's funny um there is this uh person i'm trying to remember his name right now who uh was a huge ketamine advocate and uh he also did work for the cia and work with dolphins intelligence and this and that really um well-known guy i'll think of his name in a minute but he uh he was a heroin addict and he used to, I'm sh- um, not a hair. Sorry. I keep saying heroin when I mean ketamine, <laughs> <laughs> he, he, he was a ketamine uh, researcher, but then he got, he got addicted to ketamine and he would show up at Esalen and, you know, some of these sort of like psychedelic gatherings. And he, he had welts all over his body from injecting ketamine all over his oh, body. No. It's just really, wow. really bad shape. Really sad. John C. Lilly was this guy's name. Um, really interesting guy. It's, it's the LSD dolphin guy, right? Yeah, dolphins. Yeah, okay. exactly. Yes. Yeah. So he, I think he was the one who talked about um, when he took ketamine, he would go to these other astral dimensions and meet these machine elves, and they would <laughs> give him directions on, you know, what to do and what to say and how to act. Yeah. And so, no, I we haven't had any elves. <laughs> we haven't had machine elves. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that was strictly a, a John C. Lilly thing, but I don't. Yeah. <laughs> no, no question. Santa Claus, unfortunately. <laughs> no. um, uh, what are your thoughts on uh, microdosing? And and I say it as a general term because obviously you can microdose with different compounds. Uh, what are your general thoughts towards the uh, the effects of microdosing? Uh, should people uh, or not should people? But would you be uh, supportive of people actually trying it on themselves uh yeah i would love your uh, view and opinion on that well again i think just as a physician as an md i i err on the side of caution and i would want to just say that um the the receptor that ls if we're talking about micro microdosing psilocybin or lsd that's what usually people are talking about yeah. they're not usually talking about mdma or ketamine because you don't really microdose those but LSD and psilocybin, um, and also the active part of ayahuasca DMT all act on the, uh, this particular serotonin receptor that, um, helps open up your mind and have these, you know, hallucinogenic experiences and stuff. But it's also part of the serotonin system, which can destabilize certain people. So, uh, just like anything else, you know, whether it's, you know, for, for one person, uh, eating red meat is, is like really necessary, mm-hmm. right? For another person, it's like really bad for them. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a similar answer with LSD microdosing or psilocybin microdosing is, 
it's not a one size fits all where it's good for everybody. Um, I think that people uh, who are very cerebral and kind of like stuck in their thinking um, probably can get a lot of benefit from that, from opening up their mind. Um, but if they have vulnerabilities that um, are going to come into play when they start playing around with serotonin, then, you know, even those people might not do great on, on a microdosing regimen. So, but um, I've had plenty of patients who said, you know what, um, microdosing psilocybin worked better for me with fewer side effects than taking two or three different antidepressants, you know? Yeah. So there's that yeah. too. Yeah. Uh, I, I did a thread, I think I told you on, uh, microdosing yeah. and, and do you know what? Like, um, I, when I look back on that thread, uh, I always kind of, I don't think I put enough caution on it and I don't think I've, mm -hmm. I talked about uh, the downsides because every single one of uh, my experiences or most of my experiences on it, uh, even if it was like, let's just say, quote unquote, negative or bad, uh, it was actually quite positive for me. And I, mm -hmm. and that's the way I took it. But for yeah. a lot of people, this it may not actually land for them in the same way. So uh, here's yeah. here's the final question from uh, from Twitter right here. What do you feel are the most powerful legal psychedelic-like substances, maybe not psychedelic, but psychedelic-like, that are that you find are best for biohacking and, in particular, for self-betterment? Uh, we can talk about like nootropics, uh, mm -hmm. things of that nature. Again, you know, it's not not to cop out on the question, but it's such an individual thing for individual people. So. I will say that one of the things that I focus on a lot with, with people is, um, inflammation and in particular, uh, trying to lessen the inflammatory load. So, um, I'm a big fan of the non psychedelic mushrooms for enhancing, uh, brain function, um, cognition, memory, clarity. Uh, I'm a huge coffee drinker too. I over drink coffee, probably, arguably. <laughs> uh, so I think caffeine is an important nootropic. I like ashwagandha. Um, that's yeah. something I, I do every day uh, just to, because I have so much trauma. It's like it helps regulate my cortisol. Hmm. Vitamin D. Vitamin D is really important uh, for so many different things. Um, and it's easy to get low. Uh, what else? I, I Maybe that's about it. Yeah. yeah. I, I like the way that you answered that because uh, these are just like, I feel like these are um, supplements that, that everyone should be taking on a regular or most people should be taking on a regular basis. And the question I asked you in regards to um, are there any like powerful, legal, non-psychedelic like substances, it's kind of like asking me, Dan, what's the best exercise on the planet? Or what's the best ex what yeah. exercise should I do inside the gym? It's kind of like, no, like what are your goals? Like, what are you trying to do? What is your background right. kind of thing? So yeah, yeah, totally respect that. Totally respect that. Okay. Uh, final couple questions right now. Um, cause you did, uh, you were doing your psychiatry practice or practice in, when you were about 30 years old. Um, yeah. so if you were to go back and give advice to your 30 year old self, uh, what would you say to him? 
You're gonna get there, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> Chill. <laughs> Relax. Like Everything's that. gonna be okay. Um, yeah. I, I, I'm just really grateful for the journey of of so much healing in my life, and 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 waking up to uh, more and more empowerment through my work and um, my, you know, my marriage with Krista is just like the most incredible blessing I've ever had in my life, and. Yeah. I had to work my ass off to be eligible to get to be with someone like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so yeah, that that's probably, I, there was a lot of work in front of me at 30 yeah. to get well enough. Awesome. And, uh, final question is, is, uh, uh, if you can put a message out on a billboard, uh, for the entire world to see, uh, what would you put on that billboard and why? Your life can be a lot better than you think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, and yeah, why would you put that on the billboard? Well, I think it goes back to what I was saying about the limitation of beliefs. And, um, I remember reading somewhere that, you know, thank goodness that, uh, God has a bigger imagination than I do. And mm. I mean, God's not really a, in me personally is not a thing that I think, you know, kind of ascribe to like a, a God outside, but yeah. the, the fact that the universe, um, Whenever I've relaxed and and trusted and and, and taken calculated risks, um, it's always been a benefit. Uh, is really trustworthy to me. So, if I only went as far as what I thought was possible in my life, I wouldn't be anywhere close to where I am today. And, and uh, I do have a follow up question, uh, which popped in my mind, <laughs> <laughs> and um, and you can you can choose to answer this one or not. Um, which is, uh, do you find that your relationship to spirituality has changed as a result of, um, not only going through psychedelic therapy, but just going through your own journey? Oh yeah, absolutely. hundred percent. hundred percent. Yeah. Like in what ways? Uh, well, I grew up in a Methodist church where, uh, you know, I had kind of like standard information about what is spirituality? And I thought that um, there was this whole thing about like good people and bad people and like good people go to heaven and bad people don't. And yeah. it, it, <laughs> it was kind of a little oversimplistic in my 11-year-old brain, but um, there was this kind of passive kind of like uh, hope I'm a good person kind of attitude uh, versus like the view that you you earn self-esteem through performing esteemable mm -hmm. acts is like a really mm -hmm. different attitude and uh so i think that i've i've learned a lot about my responsibility in spirituality to fulfill uh my potential as a human being and it's an incredibly uh inspiring journey you know to 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 face the challenges of life from that perspective of like Hey, there's a lot of people depending on me to be my best every day. Yeah. Um, and so, so that's really for me, most of what I think about is spirituality is like, um, where, where am I holding myself back at the expense of everyone else? Cause everyone else needs me to be my best self, you know? Ooh. Okay. I love that. Um, mm. it's a good way to, to end the interview right there. <laughs> So, Thanks. uh, Will brother, um, just in general, 
Uh, I really do appreciate your friendship. Uh, I appreciate uh, you sharing this knowledge uh, with everyone that uh, is listening right now. And if uh, people want to get a hold of you or if people want to know more about you, uh, where should we point them to? Uh, you should just go to Twitter and follow me at yeah. Will Vanderveer. Just uh, all, all lowercase, all one word, Will Vanderveer. That's yeah. me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he's uh, Thanks. he's putting out fire tweets right now. <laughs> he's spitting hot fire right now. So yeah, brother, thank you so much. I really do appreciate you. And um, yeah, guys, if uh, you know, if you have any questions for Will or if you uh, want to follow him, go to his Twitter, Will Vanderbur. And uh, and again, thank you so much, brother. I appreciate you. Thank you, Dan. Great being yeah, with you. Welcome. If you're enjoying this podcast, please hit subscribe on whichever platform you're tuning in from. Help Dan and the rest of the team get the word out to more entrepreneurs like yourself and leave an honest review for the show. It would mean the world to us if you can help in those two ways. Dan reviews all the feedback on the show, so we can't wait to hear what you've got for us. This show is made for your benefit, so be sure to reach out if you have any ideas on topics that we can cover on the show or people we should interview. You're listening to the High Performance Founder Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. Until next time.